those important things that I forget the mundane things. Okay, uh, we are uh, uh, going to look at the river baby. I called it alienation. They were in an alien nation, and here is one that God is going to raise up. So, so far, uh, oh, wait a minute. I, uh, let me go on. Okay. So we're going to talk about uh, Joseph. We're uh, going to talk about the life preserver, what he's doing. Uh, uh, so let's just quickly walk through what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about Joseph. I called him Little Joe because he's the last of, of Jacob's 12 sons. Then we're going to talk about Moses, the river baby. Um, then we're going to talk about the exodus and the power encounters that took place uh, there. Then the covenant at Sinai, the giving of the law, Exodus 19 through 24 particularly, and then the promised land. So we're going to walk through that today. Again, we may not get all through all of this today, but it's so vital and important. You want to understand the rest of the scripture you know, if you don't understand this, you know, as you read through the New Testament, constant discussions about the law, what do we mean by that? And so as we walk through this, I want to just point out several passages in Genesis where uh, this covenant, where again, we're, we're emphasizing the storyline of the Bible. If we're going to follow the storyline, it follows with the covenant, covenant made with Adam. Covenant made with Noah, now the covenant made with Abraham. As I said, 12, 15, 17, 22, we have those significant passages where a covenant now is a promise that's formalized. You know, in a sense, the way we do a contract, but a covenant more of a personal relationship. And so if you have your Bibles, where you're going to need them open. We're going to be uh, uh, quickly running through a number of different passages because I want you to see the focus of this theme throughout Genesis and understand I'm not contriving this. I want you to see it in the words of Scripture himself, and in Scripture itself. Look at chapter 26 of Genesis. I'm reading verse 2, uh, Isaac went to Abimelech, and the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt, live in the land where I tell you to live, stay in this land for a while, I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give these lands and confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and will give them all these lands and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my covenants, my commands, my decrees, and my laws. So Isaac stayed in Gerah. Okay, so the promise made to Abraham now is repeated. Land, seed, blessing, all three of them are right here with Isaac. Isaac, of course, is the, the son of Abraham that's going to carry on the seed. And when we talk about the patriarchs, let me put it up here, Abraham, and then his son Isaac, and then who is Isaac's son that's going to carry this on? Okay, it's going to be Jacob. It's not Esau. There's Jacob and Esau, but Esau is not going to be the, the line through which it's going to come. It's going to come through Jacob. So when you look at this account in chapter 27 of Genesis, I won't read it, but Jacob gets the blessing 
he steals it from Esau. Remember, Esau uh, was hungry, and you know, a good meal will sometimes make you uh, make some dumb promises. And uh, he lost his birthright. But underneath this, God is working behind it. Remember, he said when the twins were in the womb, the the, the younger, you know, uh, is going to be a head over the the older one. That's not the way it worked in those days. So you have in twenty seven the blessing that Isaac gives to Jacob instead of Esau. And then in chapter 28, go down to verse 3, Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him in verse 1. And then verse 3, may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful, increase your numbers until you become a company of people. May he give you and your descendants the blessing of Abraham so you may take possession of the land. You see that continuing? It's not something different. It's the same thing. Go down a little bit later in the chapter. Jacob left Beersheba. This is verse 10. Hey, you remember Jacob's ladder? We all know the story about Jacob's ladder and think this is really cool, angels going and ascending, but we often miss the substance. What what was communicated at that? And it says in verse 13, Above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. See how it's following this? Abraham, Isaac. And you, I will give you and your descendants the land in which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. Uh, all people on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you. Again, see, the same thing. What was promised to Abraham, repeated to Isaac, repeated to Jacob. If you uh, look at chapter 46, let's go over to Genesis 46 and verse 2. God spoke to Israel in a vision at night. Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation. Okay? Again, same promise. Go to chapter 48. Verse 3. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan. And there he blessed me and said, I'm going to make you fruitful and will increase your numbers. I'll make you a company of people. I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants. Now, in chapter 49, as he blesses each of the 12 uh, sons of Jacob, it comes particularly to Judah in verse uh, 8 of uh, Genesis 49. Judah, your brothers will praise you, your hands will be on their neck. I won't go through that, but Judah, of course, is the one through whom the kingdom is ultimately going to come through David. And that's going to follow that particular line. So as you go through the Old Testament, you're going to see this promise made to Abraham repeated to Isaac, you know, repeated to Jacob. Jacob's going to pass it on to his 12 sons. You can read about each of those. And then we come to Joseph. Go to chapter 37. I wish uh, uh, time were not a factor. We need to read through the whole thing. It is so good. And it is such a, a, a great account where you see God's providence through all of this. 
it's so amazing, you know, how, uh, how God set this up. It didn't just happen. So we've been talking about, I keep putting up our, our little uh, thing over here of uh, the director's chair and Yahweh, and, and he's directing this thing. So we have a stage, okay? The stage that this is playing out right now uh, is uh, in the land of Canaan, okay? And we have a cast, you know, we have a father, Jacob, we have 12 brothers, and uh, we have a bunch of things, and we have a storyline that's developing here, and I want you to see this. Now, here's God's plan. Again, if, if, the, if, if Moses, who's writing this, is just telling us what happened, you know, it's very different than the storyline of God directing the things, so what happens is what he determined would happen, and that's what we see in this passage of Scripture. He is, his plan is to pro provide a safe haven for Abraham's family and his seed to develop. And so he's going to put them in an incubator for 430 years. Uh, not a mistake. It's not like, well, what happened? Why didn't he do it immediately? God had a purpose in that, and his purpose was to take them from being a tribe, a family, into being a nation. And so as we read through this, that's what we're going to see. It's a 400-year plan. Most of us don't have plans for next week or next month. You know, God has a 400-year plan. You know, and even that's recognized in, in Galatians when talks, Paul talks about 430 years later. So what's he going to do? He's going to protect the people, the seed, in order that they will become a nation, and then he's going to give them the land. He's not giving them the land yet. That's going to come a little bit later. He's going to provide for them. You know, it's amazing to see the way, the provision of God in really remarkable ways. He's going to prosper them. You know, they're, they're going to continue to increase. Their, it's going to be like the stars in the heavens. It's going to be like the sand on the seashore. And then he's going to propel them out. They're not going to stay there. You know, Egypt thinks they will, but God has other plans, and we'll see as we walk along. So what does God do? He selects what I call a special agent. You know, here is little Joe, okay? Uh, now, I was kind of the head of my family. I was the second one born. My sister was a year older, but I was the first boy. And then we had five kids in our family, so I was kind of at the front end. My little brother, Bruce, was at the tail end. And he got some leftovers, but he also got some benefits. My parents, I think they're, you know, the focus on discipline, it kind of wore them down through me. You know, uh, I know I was a very responsible young boy because everything went wrong. My dad would say, you're responsible. You're responsible. <laughs> and usually he was right. Usually he was right. So anyhow, Joseph is... Uh, uh, a very important character in all of this. And so God sets the stage. Remember, God's directing all of this. And can you believe that God intends for family tensions to develop? That's his plan here. And so there are these family tensions. 
Joseph is loved by his father because he's the son of his old age. He is the last son of, you remember, Rachel and Leah. He fell in love with Rachel. She was a knockout, you know, when he saw her. He was love at first sight. But he got tricked into marrying Leah, you know. And, you know, that's a long story. We can't go through all of that. But anyhow, uh, Rachel gave birth uh, to Joseph and died. And so he is very special. So what does he do? He's a tattletale. He goes in and tells dad what his big brothers are doing gets him in trouble. So they don't like him. And then uh, remember, uh, because he was daddy's pet, he got this special colored robe. That never seemed very special to me. I never wanted a colored robe. But whatever it was, it was something that was unique and set him apart. His brothers hated that. Did that just happen, or is this part of God's direction? You know, I want you to see how his hand is working through this, and uh, you have the sibling revenge. Uh, you remember Joseph's dreams? You know, he dreamed that uh, uh, all of the, you know, the sheaves bowed down to his. Then he had another dream that all the stars and the moon and the sun bowed down to him. And they're, they're done with him. They're fed up with this attitude. But listen, God is putting him in a particular place. And what he does is he goes from slave to prison to palace. Now, you know the story. His brothers uh, are out taking care of the sheep, and, and he's sent by his dad to bring them some supplies. And when they see him, let's get rid of this guy. And so Reuben tries to save him, but he doesn't succeed. And they sell him to the Ishmaelites, the Midianites, a caravan that's going by. And he gets sold into Egypt, you know, to Potiphar. And he's in Potiphar's house, and uh, you can read the account. It says, but God was with him and prospered him, and everything, you know, went well in the house until, you know, Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, and he refused, and, and so he was unfairly thrown in prison. Okay, so think about this. From being in his own land and his own family, being captured and sold into slavery in a foreign place, you know, being in Potiphar's house, then being put in prison, and he's there for some period of time. Remember, he says later, God intended this for your good. These aren't things that just are happening. This is what God is doing to move the storyline along. And so he goes into prison, and uh, while he's there, God blesses him in prison. The, 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 the prison, the guy in charge of the prison, puts him over everything else. And you remember at that time, Pharaoh got upset with a couple of his, uh, uh, what was it, uh, the uh, candlestick maker? and uh, Yeah, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. No, I think that's a different story. Uh, but anyhow, they had these dreams, and he interpreted them for them. And he said, now, when you get back to Pharaoh, don't forget about me, but they did. Then Pharaoh had a dream. Nobody could answer, uh, explain the dream. And then the uh, 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 cupbearer said, you know what? There was a guy in prison, you know, this Hebrew guy. And, he, and he, so he called him up. And what happens? He, he explains what the dream is, the seven years of famine that are coming. And uh, 
he goes from the prison house now to the palace. He is second in command. You know, the only one that has more authority than him is Pharaoh himself. Now, what is God doing by this? Well, he's in the process of rescuing his people. So he's going to put Joseph in a place where he's going to be able to accomplish something that couldn't have been done in any other way. Now, wouldn't you love to have a video of this, you know, of the visits of his brother? You know, here is Joseph in all of his Egyptian garb, and these uh, ten brothers come in. He knows them. You know, he hasn't forgotten, you know, about the last time he saw him, you know, when they threw him in the, the pit and then sold him into slavery. They are clueless. They have no idea. And he treats them roughly and uh, says, okay, you guys are a bunch of spies. No, we're not spies, and we have a younger brother at home. And he said, okay, you know, if that's true, uh, I'm going to keep one of you here, and then uh, you bring the other one down, and I'll, I'll let him go. And you know the rest of the story. Eventually, Joseph revealed himself to who he was, and that's when he says, listen, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. And then Jacob himself comes down. Jacob and the rest of the family come down to Egypt, and they settle there. Now, again, it would seem like, man, this is a dangerous thing. They're away from the land that God promised them. But in fact, it's exactly what God intended so that they can be in this incubator until they will grow to a nation where they will be able to go in and uh, take over the land. And so you have all these family matters. You can go through and read the account of all 70 of the people that went uh, from Canaan down to Egypt. Well, God's timeline uh, is, uh, is really amazing as you go through this. Uh, uh, his purpose through this is to preserve. Now, you think of Joseph. As God never explained everything that was happening to him. And it's kind of like Job. You know, we know what's going on with Job. Job doesn't know. And there have to be times when God's doing things that it doesn't seem to make sense to us. But God knows what he's doing. And God has a purpose. He's going to keep the promise that he made to Abraham. So he's going to use the most powerful and ruthless nation on earth to do that. Now that was never Egypt's intent. You know, we want these people to come in so they'll grow and eventually destroy us. That was not their plan. But God's plan is always working in ways that we don't understand and we can't see. And his approach to this it's just kind of a quiet providence. You know, it's not in big letters. It just seems to be working out this way. And that's the way God usually works in our life. It's not the dramatic things. And in that sense, Joseph becomes, in a way, a type of Christ. You know, the one who's going to come along, and he's the one that's going to rescue us. And again, I want you to see this as we go through all of these things. These are pictures that keep pointing forward, but they keep pointing forward to Jesus Christ. That's the seed. Abraham was promised a seed. David was promised a seed. Uh, Isaac and Jacob were promised a seed. But that seed is going to be Jesus Christ. 
So all of these things are moving, and I want you to get the feel of how this is, how this is moving, how God is directing it, even to the minutest details, you know, of this particular caravan, you know, this particular man Potiphar, this particular prison, this particular servant, you know, that has the dream. And, and, and Pharaoh, you see, on and on and on, God's hand is behind all of this. And let me suggest something to you. God's doing the same thing right now in our life, you know, in our world, in our nation. You know, it's easy to stand back and say, well, I guess God abdicated, you know, authority. Things are a mess, you know, uh, it's never going to work out. Yes, it is. You know, God's purposes will be accomplished. And uh, we know through Revelation, the end is not going to be easy, you know, for the people of God. Now, that's another whole thing. We'll have to save that for another study. But I want you to go to Exodus. What a great book Exodus is. Uh, if, if you've never spent time, not just quick reading through it, but just soaking in it. Man, there is so much here. And we come to Moses. Moses is one of the key characters in Scripture. You remember at the Transfiguration, uh, when Jesus just lit up, you know, his, his clothes were white as the light, and who appeared to him? Moses and Elijah, the two great Old Testament prophets. And so when you come to Exodus, we uh, are immediately confronted with the slave camp in Egypt. Uh, these Israelites, now this is, you know, 400 years later plus, and they have grown, they, they have multiplied, and now Egypt has forced them into a cruel mode of slavery. They, there is oppression of the worst kind. You can read through this, and of course, that oppression was because there was a new king that didn't know about Joseph, you know, so there's a new pharaoh, there's a new sheriff in town, uh, uh, and things are going to work differently. Now these people are being used to accomplish the purposes of pharaoh, but the people proliferate. Why is that? Well, they, you know, they were just very, you know, procreative, I guess. You know, uh, I, we have one uh, friend that we've known for years that grew up in a family of 16 kids. Uh, they were originally from the Netherlands. And those 16 kids produced, was it 125 grandkids? I think 125 grandkids. Now, can you imagine? Every third day you got a birthday card, you know, or something to send out and remember. But now... This is unbelievable. They just continue to multiply. So they said, okay, uh, uh, the word is uh, the midwives, when you go in to deliver these babies, if it's a boy, you've got to kill it. Well, they didn't. They resisted uh, the uh, powers that be, and, and the abuse was systemic. It was, it was there, and it seemed like we're not going to escape. And so we, we have to kill the babies, and particularly, he said, the baby boys. Well, in chapter 2, read about Amram and Jochebed. They were part of the, the priestly line. They have this little baby. Uh, he isn't, he didn't, uh, they didn't name him Moses. Uh, you're going to see how he was named. Uh, and so after they hid him for as long as they could, they finally made the little you know, basket uh, 
and put it in the Nile River, and Miriam, the sister, you know, kind of hid behind the bush to watch, would see what happened. And wouldn't you know, just by luck, Pharaoh's daughter comes by. And just by luck, the baby starts bawling, and just by luck, she has a pot. And rather than saying, okay, call this one of the Hebrew babies, let's get rid of it, what does she do? She goes against everything they're supposed to be doing, and she takes the baby home as her own. But remember what Miriam does? She runs up and says, well, do you want me to find somebody to nurse this baby? She said, yeah, it would be a great deal. And so she takes him back to, her, to Jochebed. And Jochebed raises her son till he gets to a certain age, and then he goes to live in the palace. Again, see God's hand in this? Not just happening. Well, as Moses grew to maturity, there came a point of time that he stepped in to stop the abuse. And here was an Egyptian slave driver abusing uh, a Hebrew, and he killed him, buried him in the sand. And the next day he came, saw two of the Hebrews fighting with one another, and he tried to separate them, and he said, are you going to kill me like you did the Egyptian? And he said, "Uh uh-oh, this isn't secret any longer. And uh, he put an egg in his shoe and he beat it. You know, he he got out of there. He had to leave. He left Egypt. He went to to uh, down to Midian, uh, and uh, there he gets a wife. Uh, and uh, 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 forty years. He's forty years old at this place. He spends forty years in Midian. Now, if I were doing it, I would be about two months at each one of these things. You know, I, I want to get the thing done. But God is patient. You know, there's forty years. You know, as he comes to maturity, 40 years that he is in Midian, the impression is intolerable. The cries go up. And again, as you read through this section, uh, you, you begin to feel the pathos of this, that things are really bad and things are going to get worse. So what does God do? Well, the burning bush. Uh, Exodus 3 and... God's revelation of who he is, the I am that I am, is one of the most critical texts in Scripture. Again, we need six weeks to go through just what's right here. But all we can do is just glance at it. And you remember the account. You know, Moses is out there in in the desert of Midian, and suddenly he sees a bush burning, but it's not consumed. And he goes over and said, I've got to check this out. And as he goes over, there's a voice that says, take off your shoes, your sandals. The place you're standing is holy ground. And as he approaches, what happens? God speaks to Moses in a remarkable way. Remember, Moses was the guy that God spoke face to face, not, not anybody else. He had that unique position. And there God reveals his name, not just Elohim, not just God, but he reveals his name as the great I Am. And you come to the book of, uh, of John, I am the vine, I am uh, the shepherd, I am uh, the resurrection. You have seven of the I am's. That's all tied back to what's happening here. And when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, what did the Jews do? They grabbed him, ready to throw him off the mountain or kill him because they understood what he was saying. Nobody said, I am. In fact, here's a little quick Hebrew lesson. When you say Yahweh or Jehovah, most think it's better pronounced Yahweh, that simply is the verb to be, and it's in the third person. So when you say Yahweh, you say he is. When God himself speaks, 
He doesn't say Yahweh. He says, I am. And the, the New Testament has the, the, the phrase ego eimi is the Greek term. I am that I am. Not simply static existence, but I'm going to be the God who's going to carry all of these things through. I'm going to do what I promised to do. And that is the foundation of Scripture. God can be trusted. So you have this revelation of I am, and he says, okay, things are bad. I'm going to send you back to Egypt to deliver the people. And you've got this battle back and forth between God and Moses. You know, and Moses gives one objection over another. They're overruled. He says, you're going back. You're going to challenge Pharaoh. Now think about this for a minute. Here is this no, you know, he has no standing. And in fact, he has a negative standing because, you know, he's a, uh, I guess, I don't know if they had an FBI and they had a most wanted list, but he would have been on that. That's why he fled the country. Now, he is going back into that very context to say, you need to let these people go. Well, you read this. Let me, let me read just a, a couple of verses from chapter 5. The end of chapter 4, he returns uh, to, uh, to Egypt. Uh, he meets with uh, his brother Aaron, uh, and he told him everything that had happened. Then he performed the signs before the people in order to validate who he was. Chapter 5, afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. How do you think this is going to go? Pharaoh said, and I'm telling you, Pharaoh wished a hundred times he would have responded differently than this. What does Pharaoh say? Who is the Lord that I, remember Pharaoh is God, that I should obey him? This is my turf. Who's the Lord coming in that I should, I don't know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. I'll tell you something. He got to know God, and he did let Israel go. And, you know, for him to say, who is the Lord? God said, let me show you who I am. And, and so in this account, in, in chapter 5, uh, 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 you, you have him going there, and then Pharaoh responds, and then he puts the, 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 the pressure on them to produce the same number of bricks but no straw. In fact, for many years, uh, there were those that said, well, this is an obvious mistake. They didn't use straw to make bricks in Egypt. And then, I don't know, 50 years ago, 75 years ago, I don't remember the date, somebody found some things in Egypt that said, yes, they did. They used straw to make bricks. And it simply confirmed what for you know, for generations was said, well, the Bible's obviously wrong. They didn't, they didn't do it that way. Well, yes, they did. Uh, and, and so the pressure is on them. Then you come to chapter 6. Again, wish we had time to walk through this. Uh, uh, go to the end of chapter 5, uh, verse uh, 22. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought this trouble on the people? See, Moses now is saying, because actually right above that, uh, the people say in verse 21, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. You've made us a stench to Pharaoh. 
They're not happy with Moses. That is the, the Israelites now that are being put under great pressure. Then Moses goes to God and says, Lord, what are you doing? Look at verse 22. Why have you brought this trouble on this people? Is that why you sent me here? Let me tell you, a lot of times it doesn't look like God's plans are working out very well. But that's always from our perspective. Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's brought trouble upon this people, and you've not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now, now, watch that word throughout. Now and today, especially when we come to the book of, of Deuteronomy, it says, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he'll drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. Okay, those are the, the three patriarchs we talked about. But by name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the Israelites from the Egyptians, uh, whom the Egyptians are enslaving. I've remembered my covenant. See how that appears again and again? God hasn't forgotten that. Therefore, say to the Israelites. Now, in my Bible, I circle every time you see an I. Okay, this is not Moses who's going to rescue the people. Listen to what God says. Therefore, he's saying to Moses, tell the Israelites, I, Yahweh, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, I will free you from being slaves, I will take you as my own people, I will be your God, I am the Lord your God, I'll bring you to the land that I swore to Jacob, I will give it to you as a possession. I know, 10 or 12 times, I didn't count them up, but I, 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 God's going to do this thing. But he's going to use Moses and he's going to use the people as an instrument in this. And what he says is, I'm going to do this, but Pharaoh's not going to cooperate. He's not going to listen. You know, uh, I'm going to harden his heart, in fact. And that raises one of the, the tricky questions that uh, is often asked. How can God do that and not be uh, uh, guilty of, of impropriety, of forcing somebody to do something? We'll have to do that in another session. So we're not going to answer that today. But there are good answers to that. But God prepares Moses for Pharaoh's response. And he wants Pharaoh to, or wants Moses to know, when Pharaoh resists, that's part of the plan. That's what I want. I want this to happen so that I'm going to be able to, to show my glory in a way that no one can miss it. You know, if Pharaoh would have just said, okay, whatever you want, go. You know, all of what we know in here in these power encounters, you know, that would be totally gone. Now, Moses goes back to Egypt. He meets with Aaron, confers with the leaders, as we've talked about. Pharaoh reviles God. He punishes the people. Uh, the people blame Moses. Uh, Moses cries out to God. And so you have God's plan to display that. This brings us to chapter 7. And what I've called the power encounters. These are dramatic things that God is doing. The exodus, uh, uh, exodus simply means exits. How they're, they're, they're being taken out of that land. So here's the battle plan. Moses is going to perform wonders. 
You remember it was throwing his rod down and became a snake. They threw their rods down and became a snake, but he swallowed theirs up. You know, and then puts his hand inside and brings it on its leprous and he puts it back in its hole. Then he takes water and pours it out and it becomes blood. And he does this in order to authenticate the fact he's not a charlatan. You know, this is not some kind of, you know, magic trick. This is God validating this is the one that he has sent. And so in the midst of this, we're told that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You're to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Okay? Not... The, the, the resistance is not something unexpected. It's part of the plan. And what does God do? He devastates Egypt, and each of these ten plagues focus on one of the gods of Egypt that are totally crushed. We had, I remember in our, our church in South Carolina, we had uh, a guy, Alec Millen. He's about six foot nine. He played for the Jets at one time. And we would do a children's message, and we're doing David and Goliath. And so we had a little five-year-old boy come up and arm wrestle Alec Millen. You know, now his hand is up here, and the boy is trying to reach it. And it's like, who are you going to put money on here? You know, what, what's it look like? I mean, there's no chance this little six-year-old is not just going to be crushed by this. Friends, let me tell you something. You don't want to challenge God. You know, it's a whole lot worse than David and Goliath or this little guy and Alec Millen. Uh, and Pharaoh, there is this arrogance that says, I'm going, to, I'm going to show God who I am. And he did. He was nothing. You know, he had no power. All of his gods were impotent. And again and again and again, uh, going through the ten plagues, it's kind of exciting, you know, as you see all the things God does. And then how God makes a distinction between uh, uh, his people and uh, 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 Egypt. You know, the darkness was not in their place. And some of the, the, the plagues, we don't have time to go through them, were not there. But then you see God's presence with a pillar of cloud and fire that come down into their midst. How, who can forget in uh, chapter 14, I think it is, the parting of the Red Sea. Uh, all kinds of people have tried to figure out how this happened naturally because, of course, supernatural things don't happen. And we simply know God's doing what he said. And he opened a path for them when they seemed to be trapped. He opened a path so that they could go through on dry land. And you know the story. Uh, Pharaoh decided, hey, this must be a good route to go. And he and his whole army went in. The water comes crashing down. All of them died in that. And one of my favorite sections is chapter 15. I've always thought I wanted to memorize this one time. And I haven't so far. And now, you know, my memory is such that, uh, uh, oh, well, actually my memory is perfect. It's my recall that's not so good. Uh, but this is a great passage. The song of Moses, I'll sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he's cast into the sea. And you go on and see this great exaltation of what God did. But God is not done yet. 
Okay, they are out of Egypt. Pharaoh and his unstoppable army is stopped. They're dead. They're gone. And now we begin to move on to the heart of what we want to look at, and that is the Mosaic Covenant itself. Now that he gets them out of there, there's going to be a covenant that he's going to establish. So we find uh, three instances where there are kind of conflict between the people of God and God himself. Uh, The waters of Merah, they begin to grumble and complain. Then they don't have food, so God provides the manna, and then he provides the quail. And in fact, for the first time, Sabbath, uh, we see that in chapter 16. Sabbath never appears earlier than that in the scripture. comes about in Exodus chapter 16. And then you have the situation in chapter 17, water from the rock, and he goes up and strikes the rock, and water comes out. And then in chapter 18, Jethro comes to visit Moses, gives him some advice about setting up a leadership structure, some authority, and then we come to the heart of it. Exodus 19 through 40, and particularly Exodus 19 through 24. Uh, that's where this covenant is established. I'm going to introduce that. I was quite sure we weren't going to get through all of this today, but I want you to take a look at chapters 19 through 24, because that is the heart of it. And then you're going to see that's repeated later. But chapter 19 is going to give you the setting. And I suggested, in fact, let me ask, how many times did Moses go up and down the mountain in this? Anybody work that out? Okay, I'll give you another week to work on it. You know, go back and look and see. You know, he goes up and he goes down and up and down Mount Sinai. And remember, this goes on from chapter 19 through chapter 40. The the golden calf is during, even though it's some chapters later, it's happening all at the same time. So uh, chapter 19 through chapter 40 is all happening in one space of time. So you have to read it that way. So we have the setting of that in chapter 19. Let me point out just a a couple of the things in in chapter 19 that become so important. Verse 3. Moses went up to God. This is the first time he goes up the mountain. And the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, see, there's the word again, then out of all the nations you'll be my treasured possession. That's a really important word. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Does that sound like what Peter said? You know, uh, he quotes this very text of scripture. These are the words you are to speak to the children of Israel. Chapter 20, we then have the ten words, the ten commandments. Uh, 
the scripture ever never actually calls them the Ten Commandments. They're always called the Ten Words. We have those, and then in chapter 20 through 21 through 23, we have what are called the judgment. These are kind of like the case laws. How are you going to take these ten words and actually apply them? And then in chapter 24, we have the covenant itself actually ratified. And so we read the words in, in uh, chapter 24, what is it, verse 8. Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. Now, we're only kind of warming up to this. Sorry, but our, our, our time escapes us. And we're going to come back to this next week. And then the following week, remember, will be Easter Sunday. We won't meet that Sunday. And then we'll pick up after that. Let me encourage you in one thing. Don't listen to those that say all this stuff is boring. Who needs to know this? I'm telling you, there is so much here that, you know, you can soak in this for a long time and not absorb everything that's there. And what I hope you see in all of this is here's God's hand, you know, weaving and working and bringing things together. And friends, I'm telling you what, God's going to do what he determined to do. God's going to keep the promises. He made some remarkable promises, a land. A seed and a blessing. We get a little bit of the idea of the land thing with even the continuing tensions that are over there in Israel and the Middle East today. You know, and it was the same then. It's like this little band of people is going to go in and take over that land. Yeah, because God's going to do something. And he has a purpose for that. They're going to be in the land in order to accomplish a purpose that goes beyond what they ever will accomplish in themselves. So, let me encourage you, especially this section in, in, uh, uh, in Exodus uh, 20, uh, 19 through 25, 32, 33, and 34, the golden calf, read that together, and then just go soak in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is so good. You know, I love the book of Deuteronomy, and it is so challenging and so convicting as well. And I'm convinced if you'll do this, you know, when we come to class, it's going to, a lot of these pieces are going to fit together that won't, as you just listen to me trying to summarize it. And again, I apologize for my summary being so weak. There's so much more that's there. But I hope you'll feel in your heart and spirit, and I want to go back, and I, I want to listen to this. I want to see what God promised. I want to see what he actually did. But for now, we've got to close with prayer and uh, head on to the service. Let's pray. Father, we pray today that you would help us appreciate afresh your providence in all of this. Uh, you are the director. Uh, you're the one that has written script, and you're the one that's directing its performance. Lord, as we see your providence at every step along the way, from the imprisonment of Joseph to uh, the uh, provision of the quail and the manna and Everything in between, uh, Lord, give us eyes to understand and to see how this is part of this great storyline that's pointing forward to the final hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would cause your spirit to open our minds and hearts that looking at these things, understanding these things, will not just give us more information, but will enable us to love and to praise you even more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.